You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles and be in the book of Colossians this morning, Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, as we are in week three of a series that we're calling The Goat, the greatest of all time. Unlike almost any other section in the entire Bible, Paul in the book of Colossians is going to place Jesus as a supreme, the highest of all, the greatest of all time. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here at First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. I want to remind you that our content team has put together a devotion that walks right alongside this sermon, both in English and in Spanish. If you're interested in that this week, as you continue to follow Christ, text the word sermon to 45776. Today we're going to study an amazing prayer by Paul that communicates the gospel. Paul is going to remind us in this prayer that, that how you talk to God matters and what you say to God matters even more. And so Paul is going to provide us a model in which you and I can take in our everyday lives, and he's going to center it upon the principle of thanksgiving. He's going to remind us the power of having an attitude of gratitude, and that's exactly from Colossians 1, verses 12 through 14, what I'm going to talk to you about this morning, the power of praying thanksgiving to God. Thanksgiving and gratitude has been an essential quality in almost all civilizations throughout history. The Egyptians, for instance, are one of the most innovative civilizations the world has ever known. They treasured gratitude and thanksgiving as a social ethic in which all inhabitants should have. They thought so much of expressing gratitude that, that even their loved ones and friends that, that would pass away, they would, as a society, write thank you notes to them, believing that gratitude was essential even in the afterlife. Greek and Roman civilizations at the time of the Bible, their soldiers, for instance, were required to say thank you to any superior officer when giving a request. I read an article this week that said that 63% of all CEOs of Fortune 500 companies confessed to hiring the applicant that wrote them a thank you note. In other words, they hired the applicant that expressed the most gratitude. Research tells us even today that those who have an intentionality of gratitude, they are happier in their life, they are healthier in their life, they have more of a positive disposition in regard to their life than those who do not display gratitude. So are we doing this? When we talk to the Lord, do we, do we have a sense of gratefulness? Is there an attitude of gratitude when we petition God? Paul is going to give us in this amazing prayer in Colossians 1, 3 through 14, He's going to communicate how we are to talk to God, that you and I are to petition the Lord when we pray to him, that we're to acknowledge who God is and what he has done, what he is doing in our lives. But Paul is going to teach us today in verses 12 through 14, that we are to do so with a sense of thankfulness, that we are to have an intentionality of gratitude of what God is doing and what he will continually do because you were saved to give thanks. I'm going to give you from verses Colossians 1, 12 through 14, three spiritual realities that the Lord wants us to have in mind when we pray to him. Three spiritual truths that when you are talking to God, as he talks to you through his word, that you're to remind and keep in your heart as you continue to give thanks to the Lord. You were saved to give thanks. Look at Colossians 1, 12 with this in mind. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father. Let's stop right there. Literally, giving thanks with joy. 
that thanksgiving for God is to be a vital part of our prayer life to God. This word thanksgiving here describes words that are heartfelt, that are genuine, that are our primary expression of thankfulness. As a Christ follower to God, we are to praise him for the work that he has done and he is doing in our lives. Remember in the Bible in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 15, Paul says that thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The thanksgiving, the gratitude is to be a primary petition for every believer who is living for Christ. And the Bible is flooded with individuals, both from Genesis to Revelation, who give praise to the Lord as a way of life. For instance, David in Psalm 28, verse 7, Israel's greatest king, arguably one of the greatest warriors the world has ever known, as a way of life in Psalm 28, verse 7, David said, I give thanks to you, the Lord. The Levites, those who would dedicate their life to the study of the word of God and to living that out, were as a group, those who, according to 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4, gave thanks to God in every aspect of their lives. Daniel, one of the most significant individuals in a tumultuous time of God's people, made it a sense of every day to have an intentionality in Daniel 6.10 of giving thanks to God. Jesus, our King, who is not just a way of life, but who is the way of life, modeled gratitude and thanksgiving to his disciples in John chapter 6, verse 11. Commands that all followers of Christ should have this expression, this disposition of thankfulness in Matthew chapter 26, verse 27. Paul, arguably the greatest Christ follower of all time, told Christ followers at Rome in Romans 1, 8, that his sole endeavor was to give thanks to God in all aspects of his life. Even the angels in Revelation 7, verse 11, as a way of their being, express thankfulness to God. From Genesis to Revelation, we are to give thanks. His people are to model thanks, ascribe gratefulness to God for who he is and what he's done. That is why, in contrast, those that fail to give thanks in the Bible are characterized as wicked and ungrateful. No, may it not be of, of us in 2024. May we have an intentionality, a discipline, that every time we talk to the Lord, that every time we ask for his blessing and for his wisdom and discernment, for his power in our lives, that we would do so with a sense of thankfulness. Now, perhaps a better question as we continue to engage this text is, wait a minute, what, what then should we be thanking God for? If we're to have this disposition of thanks, if we're to have this attitude of gratitude, well, the Bible tells us that we're to thank God for who he is. Psalm 30, verse four. That we're to praise the Lord that he is the one true God, that he is high above all things. He's not like any other God. He's not a statue or a thought. No, he's the living king of the universe and he's our king. We're to thank him for it. The Bible says in Psalm 29, verse 2, the word to thank God for his holiness, that he is set apart, that he is literally the essence of all of life, and we're to thank him for it. We're to thank God according to Psalm 75, verse 1, and Philippians 4, 5, for his nearness. Man, when times get tough, when uncertainty abounds, our God engages more, not less. He is always with us in Christ, and we're to praise him for it with a sense of thankfulness. Now, simply, we're to thank God for meeting our basic needs in our everyday life, providing food on our tables and a roof over our heads in 1 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. We're to praise God and give him thanks, the Bible says, for our salvation, for the ability to make an impact and continue to model the gospel among others according to 1 Timothy 1, 12. 
Finally, we thank God for spiritual growth in our lives and believers' lives. And we thank God for having a meaning and a purpose that is above all things, according to 2 Corinthians 8, 16. And Paul, as a way of life, as he continued to praise God for the work that he was doing in Colossae, among these believers in the book of Colossians, he says, I am always giving thanks to the Father for you, based on three great spiritual realities in your life. Three great truths that all of us in Christ have. Number one, that God has qualified us in Christ. That number two, God provides victory for us through Christ. And number three, that God reigns over us and forgives us by Christ. You see, we are most thankful for Jesus and his perfect work for us and in us. And it should dominate every aspect of our lives. It should be on our heart every morning when we get up. It should be on our minds every action and conversation that we have throughout the day. And it should be exemplified by our faith as we end this day in giving thanks to God. You were saved to give thanks. For what? Number one, look at verse 12. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. This word qualify here signifies a completed action. It's, it's only used one other time in the entire New Testament. Here and in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, it means to make sufficient, to be fit, to be empowered, to be given a title that one does not deserve. God qualifies the unqualified. Paul is saying that we should have a sense of thanks, not based upon our practice, but our position that God by his grace positionally qualifies us, not by our character or merit or works, but no, by the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, before Christ, you and I were unqualified. We weren't worthy of this inheritance because of our thoughts and our actions and our lives were dominated, controlled by a sinful, fallen, lost and hopeless nature. Paul details this in Ephesians 2, one through three, when he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Filling out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but no more. The moment you and I place our faith in Christ, God qualifies us in Christ. So much so that he qualifies us to what? To share in an inheritance of the saints in light. You see this right here? Verse 12 communicates that because of God in his work in us by Christ, that a believer upon their faith in Christ is given each of us an individual allotment, a portion of his eternal inheritance. Have you ever been given something that you didn't deserve? Remember the feeling and the emotions, the awe of that. I remember when, when Brynn and I were, were married, we were right around five years, and you know, God began to place on our heart that I mean, we really love children, Lord, and, and so God blessed us with our son, Major. And we, at the time, we had two cars. I had a Pontiac Sunfire that was kind of you know, cruising around southeast New Mexico where we were serving in ministry there, kind of get you from you know, there to where you needed to be. And Brynn, she had a Jeep Grand Cherokee Deluxe. Patriot Blue V8. That thing would go zero to 60 faster than almost any car I've ever driven in my life at about eight miles a gallon, by the way. 
lot, lot of, guzzled a lot of gas. But we loved that car. And so we would occasionally hang out in southeast New Mexico, loving life. Our, our family and friends would come and visit us sometimes. And so it's about an 11-hour trek from this part of Oklahoma to southeast New Mexico where we were hanging out and doing life. And my parents would come see us and, and Bryn's parents would come see us. Well, one time, Bryn's parents were supposed to come see us. Now, Bryn grew up on a farm. They're not late for anything. They're up before the sun rises. They go to bed way after the sun sets. So for my father-in-law, on time is 10 minutes early. Okay? If you show up right on time, you're late. And so we were waiting for them one day, and they were late. We were supposed to have lunch with them, and they didn't show up, and they wouldn't answer their cell phones. And so two or three o'clock in the afternoon came by, and have you heard from them? No, I haven't heard anything. What's going on here? And so right about dinner time, a doorbell rings, and my in-laws walk in. And my mother-in-law and father-in-law have this huge smile on their faces. And we're like, what in the world is going on here? And so they said, hey, before we eat, why don't you guys sit on the table? We're going to talk to you about something. Okay. And then they just sit there and looked at us for a minute. We were looking at them and they were looking at us and no one was saying a thing. And my mother-in-law kind of looked at my father-in-law like, it's time. And he pulls out this catalog and places it right in front of me. And it says, Honda Odyssey. Now, what in the world is this? Now, you have to remember, uh, Bryn and I were the ones determined not to be the minivan couple. Like we were way too cool for that. Like that wasn't gonna happen. I wasn't gonna be the dad driving around the minivan to soccer games and football games and baseball games and to church and all this sort of, that wasn't gonna be us. We we're gonna ride in style. But it would only be God in a sense of humor that I have this catalog in front of me that says Honda Odyssey, a minivan. And so we said, well, what is this? And my father-in-law says, your mother-in-law and I have been for the last several hours meeting with a car dealership here in Southeast New Mexico. And we bought you guys this van and we want to give it to you as a gift from our family to your family. Only in God's sense of humor, when I get a minivan because it was given to me, right? I didn't choose this. It was given to me. Now, the amazing thing is it's the best car we've ever owned in our lives. It's the best car that I've ever had. In fact, we love it so much. We're going to give it to our kids someday. It's going to be their first car. All right. They're not quite as enthused about that decision. But hey, buy your own car or you're going to get this car. It was given to you just like it was given to us. Have you ever been given a gift that you didn't deserve? You see, Paul says, when we pray to God, we're to give thanks because he has qualified us who were unqualified. That he's given to us an inheritance by the Father to the saints. This word inheritance has tremendous significance. In the Old Testament, it consisted primarily of three things, relationship, land, and the guaranteed promise of God. In the New Testament, a believer's inheritance, are you ready for this? Is the present reality of God's eternal life in us. Remember what Jesus says in John 10, 10? The thief, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, he says, have come to give you eternal life abundantly from God the Father. Literally, God's life lived in us is the guaranteed inheritance of all believers. That God himself lives in us and through us for his glory. So number one, this inheritance speaks to one, the reality of God's eternal life. It's not just something in the future. It is a present reality for us in Christ. Number two, it speaks then of the assurance of his promises. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20? For all of God's promises find their yes in him. 
all of God's promises, find the fulfillment ultimately in God's son. Therefore, any question mark in our life, any email that we weren't suspecting, any I am, DM, conversation, anything that is outside of what we wanted is actually in line to exactly what God has for us. For his glory and for our good, that you and I would become more and more and more of who we were saved to be, not something, but someone, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we pray to God, this reality is to be within our hearts and minds. That we're to have a sense of thankfulness that God has qualified us in Christ. That he's given us an eternal, glorious inheritance solely reserved for us. You say, well, how long does it last? Forever. As long as God lasts. And as God is eternal, so are his promises. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How long is this inheritance? Forever. Says who? Says God the Father. Based on what guarantee? On the assurance of his word, character, and promises. You see this word guarantee here in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14? You see this word right here? It means in the original languages, engagement ring. What is an engagement ring? An engagement ring is a present sign of an eternal commitment. I remember when Brent and I first met, I knew, oh, 10 seconds, that this girl was a gift by God. That if Lord, if, if somehow by your grace that you could so orchestrate someone like me, being with someone like her for the rest of my life, Lord, I promise you, I will love her with everything I've got for the rest of my life. And God was kind and he began to build that relationship. And all oh, about a year in, we began to, and remarkably Brenda as well, say, you know what? I, I would really love to be married. And so I remember I worked all summer Mowing yards and umpiring baseball games, being yelled at by parents and grandparents and everything else and doing that. Why? Because I was saving money for this engagement ring. And there was something that God had put in my heart, a specific type of ring. Brent and I, in, the, in that time in our lives, had this philosophy of life called gum time. God, you, and me. That every time we were together, we wanted to model that. We wanted to give glory to the Lord. We wanted to honor him in this relationship with one another. We also wanted to live for him together. Gum time, God, you, and me. And so I wanted a ring with three specific diamonds on it. I wanted as much bling on that ring that I could afford. And so my mom was praying with me to that end. And I remember one day I was hanging out in my dorm room in Ada, Oklahoma. I was going to East Central. And I get a call from my mom saying, Maddie, you're not going to believe this. The very ring that you've been thinking of. And she began to describe it to me. I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right is on sale for the next two hours in this specific jewelry store in South Oklahoma City. Now, it was just some random, you know, Groundhog Day sale or President's Day sale. I mean, it didn't, it wasn't any major holiday at all. It made no sense at all. But I drove all the way from Ada, Oklahoma to South Oklahoma City. And I got into this jewelry store and the moment I saw it, I knew that's the one. Three beautiful stones right there. That's the one. And by God's grace, I could afford it. Paid everything I had. I couldn't get like the, the lifetime insurance, couldn't afford it. But the insurance that I had, I got it. There was about $4 left in my checking account when I wrote that check for that ring. I paid it all. That's Paul's point. The inheritance that God has qualified us for 
is an eternal inheritance paid in full by a God who gave it all for you. This is to be at the forefront of our minds when we talk to God of what he's done and what he is doing and then give praise to God for he is a God who has qualified us in Christ. Secondly, he's also a God who provides victory for us through Christ. Look at verses 13 and 14. For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, the amazing thing is, is that verses 13 and 14 are an exposition of verse 12. And he has delivered us from what? This word delivered here is powerful. It describes and carries the idea of a dominating power greater than whatever holds a person in bondage. Deliverance from one's enemies was an important theme in the Old Testament. I'll remind you that God's people in the Old Testament were entrusted to remember specific events, entrusted to remember God's great deliverance of them from bondage. In fact, there's an entire book in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, that highlights this that what was impossible for man is made possible by God, that they were delivered from the greatest enemy, the greatest Pharaoh the world has ever known, that God rescued them, not because of what they did or what they could do, but know what only God can do on their behalf. The Psalmist, the book of Psalms is one of the most dominating books in the Bible. One of the greatest Psalms, Psalm 107, finds its entire theme in God delivering his people from their enemies. Psalm 107's theme is, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That you and I are to express as a way of life a thankfulness of the deliverance that God has done on our behalf through Christ. Now here's something interesting. In the majority of the New Testament, the word deliverance only appears in the prayers of God's people. And that is why it is appropriate that Paul in this prayer for the Colossians in Colossians 1, 3 through 14, mentions this word deliverance in verse 13. He renders this in an aorist tense, signifying a completion of thought. This is something God has already done for us in Christ, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You see, at salvation, God not only justifies and sanctifies, but also reclassifies us through faith in Jesus. That you and I have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. This word domain of darkness here carries here an executive power, a ruling authority. It describes all of those who are not in Christ that they are under the control of the evil one. They're under the control of the prince and the power of the air in Ephesians 2. Satan himself. Life is an end to themselves. They are consumed to themselves. By the way, that was all of us before Christ. Regardless of when you accepted Christ, whether it be at six or, or 96, there was a domain of darkness that was ruling in our lives. No more, Paul says. That we are to give God praise and glory because we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to now the kingdom of his beloved son. That at the cross, Jesus once and for all shattered, disarmed the control of Satan and what he would have upon God's people. 
that from the moment then a person becomes a believer, places their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything in their life changes because they are instantly and forever rescued from the operative penalty and power of sin. You and I are no longer condemned, damned in our sins before our holy God. No, those have been paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer have the operative power in our life as sin. For you and I now are controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are given over to a life full of the Holy Spirit. Thus, now the power of sin is muted in our lives. Sin is still there. It's still all around us. But we're to be in the world, not of the world, Jesus says. We've been transferred from one kingdom to another. Look at verse 13 again. Transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. This word transfer here speaks of abrupt, complete removal or change. It described in the ancient world an entire population of a conquered people being given over to a victorious king. The verb conveys here the removal by God of Satan's rule and reign over us to now Christ the beloved son of God. One who in the son of his love or in the son who's the object of his love in the original languages. God has transferred us. You ever been transferred before? You ever moved from one place to another? You ever moved schools from one school to another? We, we are in the midst of college football right now, this uh, calamity of the transfer portal. It can be really good. It can be really, really bad and awkward. Things have changed they're no longer the same. That's Paul's point. That when we pray to God, then when we petition God, God, do these things in my life. God, work in my life. Give me strength. Give me power. We're to petition him in light of what he has done and what he is doing, but with a sense of thankfulness that he will provide victory for us through Christ, God's king. You see, we have a king who reigns over the entire universe for all eternity. We have a king who is reigning over his church. We have a king who will one day, with the triune God, reign over every molecule in this galaxy presently. But until then, you have an ever-present king that never leaves a scene when times get tough in your life. Never exits the situation when things become unbearable. He refuses to vacate under any pressure. Why? Because he's God's king, that's why. Is it your king? Because if he's your king, then he's your king in every way and every day in your life. And we are to give thanks. We have been transferred from a domain of darkness to the kingdom of the loving son of God. Can I tell you that this assurance affects every aspect of your life? Oh, well, one of the beauties of January is that we kind of get to start over again in so many ways. And, and what I've done this year is that there are several missionaries that, that I want to read their biographies and study and be encouraged by. And, and one was a man by the name of C.T. Studd. You ever heard of this guy? He was in Europe, the LeBron James of his era, the Patrick Mahomes of his era, the Michael Jordan of his era. He was the greatest athlete in all of Europe. He was a cricket player. No one could do what C.T. Studd could do. He was also at the same time a billionaire's son, an inheritor of a massive fortune. And he went to college at Cambridge and he got invited one night to a revival meeting. And this revival meeting, these people began to sing praises to a king. They began to, to give glory to a king. 
He, he began to hear the story of, of a king who, who left the riches of glory to become a servant, take upon humanity, to take our place of judgment, and wrath on a cross. And what was meant for us, God's wrath was given to him. And consequently, what was in him, his righteousness was given to us. And that all of life then found its fulfillment and purpose of this king. That we were actually here not to build our own kingdoms, but to build his. Not to earn resources and money so people could look at us. No, but to live a life of generosity that people could look to him. And it was in this revival meeting that C.T. Studd gave his life to Christ right there. The impact of the gospel the treasuring of Christ and his kingdom above all things had such an impact upon C.T. Studd that he, ready for this, instantly gave away 90% of his inheritance. Gave it away to charities and other organizations that were growing the kingdom. He went on to be a missionary. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the least of these, to those who didn't even never heard of the king, could even speak English. Someone later in life asked, how could you do such things? You were the greatest athlete of your generation. Your father was one of the wealthiest individuals in all of Europe. You walked away from all of that. You've been trained and educated at Cambridge. You walked in all the way from that for Jesus? You know what C.T. Studd told this man? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Is that your heart in 2024? Do you have the discipline and the intentionality to in all things in life, whatever it is that God entrusts you with, to give thanks? Say, no, there's no such thing then as sacrifice. God, there's no such thing you can ask of me that it's too great or too small. All of it I consider gain as of what Christ has already done for me. When we pray to God, we are to have a sense of thankfulness, of a God who qualifies us in Christ, of a God who provides victory for us through Christ. Now, thirdly, look at verse 14. Of a God who reigns over and forgives us by Christ, for in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see this word redemption here? Man, mark it in your Bible. Say hallelujah. It is in the present tense. This word is actually two words in the original languages combined together. They mean to present payment in full, to buy someone back. Did you hear that? What is redemption? To present a payment in full, to buy someone back. It explains here the immediacy of God's exclusive action toward the believer in Christ. That God in Christ has paid the full endowment, the full payment for the totality of our sins, giving us then forgiveness of them, buying us back from the prince and the power of the air, destroying our sinful flesh, making us his beloved children, his sons and daughters of a king. Figuratively, it describes the act of, the act of God alone through faith alone, that pardons and frees us from our sin. We give thanks to God, for we were unqualified, but now in Christ are qualified. 
We're to give thanks to God because we were in darkness, but now we are in his light. We are to give thanks to God because we were once guilty, selfish slaves to our sin, but are now free because our sins are forgiven and paid for in Christ. You see this beauty of how this is to be intentionally entwined to every prayer that we give to God. We are to thank him for his reign over us and is for his forgiveness of our sins. You see, look at back at verse 14. These last four words, probably the most four powerful words in the entire prayer. The forgiveness of sins. You see this? It's a very rare phrase of Paul. Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament. This phrase shows up one other time in his 13 writings. That's it. Very rare phrase. What is Paul communicating? That the greatest fundamental need that we have ever had before a holy God, forgiveness, God paid in full through Christ. God gave his best. God held nothing back to provide this forgiveness. You ever been clean? Do you remember that feeling, what it is to be clean? It is miserably cold outside. It's been this way since Christmas. It's freezing, nine degrees wind chilled this morning. Consequently, I can't wash my car. I have my entire time here take diligent, meticulous care of my car. Usually twice a week, I wash it, vacuum it out. I got this from my granddad and my dad. We would, every Saturday, we would take all of our cars one by one, me and my dad, and we'd go to the car wash there in Purcell, Oklahoma, wash them together, vacuum them out together. In this cold weather, I can't do that. Everything's frozen. So my car's a disaster right now. Can barely see out the back. You could literally, students, right, wash me on the back. Please don't do that. Death. But you could. Can hardly see. Need to be cleaned and washed. You know when I go to that car wash? The moment I get out, I can see. It's clean. You see, when we pray to God, that is how you and I are to approach him. It's not as a condemning father. It's not as one who holds a grudge. It's not a stiff, awkward CEO or boss or coach. No, it's as a loving father who has already in Christ forgiven us, paid in full our redemption, the full complete sum for the totality of our sins. Now in our horizontal relationship with him, our day-to-day -day relationship with him, we come to him as this loving father and the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The God that cleanses us for the praise of his glory. God does not ignore your sin and my sin, but rather completely pays for, cancels, removes, and cleanses away through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice in verse 14 in closing that sins is in the plural? Describing all sin in our lives, big, small. Those outwardly that people can see, those inwardly that people cannot see. God through Christ pays for it all. And it's these truths, it's these spiritual realities 
that are set the foundation for our prayers to God, who qualifies us in Christ, who provides victory for us through Christ, who reigns over and forgives our sins by Christ. It is this that is to be within our hearts and in our minds as we pray to God. May all praise in honor and glory with thanksgiving be given solely to him. And may you be disciplined. May you have an intentionality in 2024 that when you talk to God and when you ask of God, that you would do so with thanksgiving. Because you were saved for such things. You were saved to give. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and always remember, you are loved.